Welcome to the New Masculine Podcast. This is a place where masculine identifying people come together in community to disrupt outdated models of masculinity and together construct new models for our way forward as men. As a special note, while this conversation is between men, this podcast values all beings and seeks to create positive impacts for all. I'm your host, Travis Stock. I am a master life coach, an equus coach, which means I often partner with horses when supporting clients, and I'm a teacher. In my coaching work, I am passionate about the balance of masculine and feminine energies in each of us, regardless of gender. I seek to help others nurture a relationship with both types of energy, which often leads to a greater sense of wholeness. And yet what I found in my work with men is that many of us have been taught messages about what it means to be a man by first teaching us to avoid anything that is associated with the feminine. That avoidance leads to few experiences of intimacy, emotions outside of anger, vulnerability, or even a sense of belonging. Striving to comply with these models of masculinity has many of us feeling isolated, ashamed, unworthy, afraid, angry, and depressed. That's why I started this podcast, to bring men together who are ready for something new, something more whole. All of you listeners really seem to be responding to the series I'm doing on how boys are educated in schools. That's why I'm really excited to have my next guest, Matt Engler Carlson, here for part two of our series with members of Division 51 of the American Psychological Association's Task Force on Boys in School. As a reminder, the mission of this task force is to release fact sheets intended to empower educators to cultivate learning environments that enable boys to embody their full humanity, question restrictive norms of masculinity for themselves, and experience schools as places that support their creativity, individuality, and growth. Matt, a professor at Cal State Fullerton, was raised by a psychologist's father who helped legitimize the field of men and masculinities. That influence inspired his own career path, which includes 25 years of study on men, masculinities, and gender. He was a core author of the APA Guidelines on the Psychological Practice with Boys and Men which received critical press from the advocates of more traditional versions of masculinity. On top of this, his work with a colleague introduced the world to the term and concept of positive masculinity. On a personal level, Matt identifies as a father, as a scholar, and as an athlete. I'm grateful that we get to continue our exploration of how we can best set up boys on their path to manhood with Matt as another guide. Let's welcome him in, hear more about his own story, and find out what guidance he has to offer. Welcome to the New Masculine, Matt. Thank you, Travis. I'm happy to be here. It's really wonderful to have you. I really appreciate your time and, and, and the work you're doing out there in the world. Before we jump into the meat of the conversation, is there anything you'd like to share about yourself that feels important? It's hard to say. I mean, I think that, um, again, I really appreciate the opportunity to kind of talk today about, um, I guess, about my path and kind of what I worked on throughout my whole life, I think, because I think for a lot of men, um, this is a lifelong kind of I don't want to call it a struggle, but I would say it's a lifelong kind of uh, venture in which we kind of begin to explore continually kind of who we are is, as men and how that, again, comes into our, our identities. And I think that um, it's a super exciting time to be a man, I guess I would say, and in the sense that um, gender, as always, is always changing. And um, it just felt like really in the past 10 years in particular, there's a lot of kind of different talk about gender that I think can be very liberating. Um, too. So I'm excited to talk about that. I love that you see it from a place of kind of exciting, an exciting time to be a man, because I think a lot of 
what's out there in the media and what's what's talked about right now is it's really hard to be a man. We're under siege. Our, our masculinity is in question. We're having to evolve and change and be different than we've been this whole time. Yeah. Um, so I'm I'm excited to hear more about your perspective, which makes it more exciting so that it's not so doom and gloomy <laughs> as the yeah. news portrays it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's interesting, right, is that you can, you can look at uh, what you just said, and I think that in some ways a lot of that is kind of true, right? You know, again, but do you take do you take change in terms of fearing change, right? Or do you take change from a place of kind of the opportunities that it provides? Mm, such a good point. So before we dive into your professional experience and the work you've been doing as a, as a professional in the world, let's, I would love to hear about your own life's work around masculinity. Tell me a little bit about what it was to grow up as a boy for you. Like, what were your models of masculinity? What did you learn about it? Tell me about it. Yeah, no, that, that's, uh, you know, it's one of those questions that I think about all the time, and I uh, there's moments of things that pop up. I remember, like, huh, forgot about that, or didn't realize that was happening. And um, you know, for me, I think a lot of my early childhood was about moving around. Um, I moved a fair amount. Um, I was born in Michigan and moved to Illinois. Lived in uh, Florida. Moved to Hawaii at age five within Hawaii for a couple of years and then moved to Wisconsin at age seven, uh, where I kind of stayed throughout my high school years. Um, and people often ask if, you know, my parents were in the military and no, my dad was an academic. <laughs> and so, that's um, what I assumed too was yeah. something military related. Yeah. 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 It was my, my dad was trying to find his, his path as a, as an academic, I think in many ways. And so, um, but, you know, that's a lot of really different environments in the sense of, you know, being certainly unaware at a young age of kind of what I was, I was exposed to probably before the age of four or five. But, you know, being pretty conscious of, uh, you know, being young in Florida. I remember like some of my models, I remember playing with Evil Knievel dolls and that being a huge deal and wanted to kind of do that. And a lot of attraction to like... Uh, adventure and kind of rescue and emergency and thing and just ways in which um i think i saw kind of men in my life and then i think this massive shift when i moved to hawaii honestly which is going from a place uh that was completely different and from a place in which i was consciously much more aware of uh, of being white honestly because in most of the situations i was in i was the only only white uh boy in the classroom and i think i was kind of began to be more aware of uh, diversity and other kind of cultures and that people experience things from, from a very different perspective. I think that um, I remember one of my younger friends who lived in the same apartment building was from Germany and kind of recognizing that, oh, he had a different understanding of the world than I did. And then going to school uh, and having a lot of, obviously a lot of friends who are Hawaiian or, or Japanese and, and most of the media actually consumed at that age was all all from Japan. So I watched Japanese TV shows and I had Japanese toys and I albums <laughs> that were all playing in Japanese and and I thought that was just the coolest thing in the world. And uh, and then I moved to Wisconsin and I realized that like I didn't know who the Dallas Cowboys were and I didn't know who Kiss was and didn't even know really what football was, you know, and coming to a place in which that was such a huge thing. Um, and that, again, the things that I grew up with and thinking was kind of the most exciting things just just wasn't. Um, but I think that early childhood for me, again, like a, a lot of moving and obviously now looking back, 
uh, I had much more appreciation for what my, my parents were going through. And uh, I realized that my parents were in some ways younger parents. They had, uh, they had two kids by the time they were 24 and 25 and that they, you know, moved to Hawaii on a whim, you know, that neither of their families thought it was a good idea <laughs> to pack up their young family and drive their MG, you know, across country and then go to Hawaii. Um, and, you know, we went there. My dad uh, had been promised a faculty job at the University of Hawaii because someone was leaving. And but he went there essentially to create all, all the guidance programs in the state of Hawaii. And so um, so he did that. And then the person who was supposed to be on sabbatical in Guam and never come back came back. And I read and what and I was always a bit of a mystery why we moved um, from Hawaii to Wisconsin in the winter. And um, I know my mother never forgave my father for it. It's um, <laughs> <laughs> a hard thing to forgive right there. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and again, for as a child, you just live, you know, you just go along with the flow, you, you know, but as an adult, I look back and think, boy, well, what was that like for my parents to essentially kind of go on this dream with, and then have to kind of come back having the dream kind of have, having failed. And you know, as a family, we moved into my grandfather's house and my, my dad didn't have a job. And I recognized that it was, must've been a really tough time for him and, 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 and for my mom, honestly. Um, so I think my boyhood in some ways was a lot of transition, a lot of moving around and then things got a lot more stable um, in the Midwest. How would you say that impacted you being in transition all the time and sort of being uh, along for the ride of your, of your parents' dreams? Yeah. No, I think that speaks a lot in terms of kind of who I am as a, as a person. I think that I'm, I have a healthy sense of wanderlust and, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and I'm pretty comfortable moving you know, being on the road and kind of going to the kind of places and having, having a sense of adventure. And I think there was a freedom I certainly experienced uh, in Hawaii. I, I think the mid seventies in Hawaii was a pretty free time. <laughs> and, and I remember going to the beach almost every day. And, um, you know, oddly enough, I, my dad at the time got into marathoning in a pretty extreme way. And so I joined a track club at age five and I would run and compete um, almost every weekend and, and it was kind of fun. And I realized that though my sister was involved as well, she wasn't really involved as much. And it was a, a look back now, definitely a bonding moment between, between me and my dad in terms of how we spent time together and it became pretty consistent over, um, almost all, all of my boyhood at that in terms of being a runner, kind of running with him and being, um, pushed to, to run often. And, uh, um, but I think that, that moving around and, and, you know, at some level, probably too, uh, a sense of class consciousness too, in terms of, again, by no means were we kind of, kind of poor or destitute yet at the same time, there was elements around being unemployed and how managing a family and, um, recognizing that again, before my, my dad was really established as a professional, the life was very different. And. Um, and for my siblings who came later, so I have, um, I, I have four siblings. I had an older sister who passed away, who was three years older than me. And then I have, I have three siblings who are younger, but there's a 10 year age gap. And I realized that the experiences that my, my siblings had growing up were quite different from mine. Well, there's two things I want to pull you out on. One of them being, it sounds like as a child, you had this interestingly unique 
culturally diverse experience where you were, I don't know that most white boys, at least in the U.S., have that experience of being one of the few white boys, being in the minority. And so you have this unique experience of being in diverse cultures and seeing different perspectives from around the world. Yeah. How do you think that shaped the man that you are now? Yeah, I think it's it's a good question and and um you know, I think it's a moment in time for me in the sense that when I look at my kind of kind of boyhood and adolescence from the, before the age of 18, the majority of my experience was in in, in mostly white places for sure. You know, but for that two years in Hawaii, it was quite different. And I think that there was this, there was a sense of, you know, I had young parents, I had activist parents. My mom was a pretty really strong feminist, and she was interested in, in, the, in the environmental movement. And I would go to Greenpeace rallies and save the whale T-shirts and all these kinds of things. And I think I just had kind of a consciousness around kind of activism in some ways, but also an exposure to um, probably pretty liberal ideas in terms of thinking about, about the world. And, um, and I think that again, being in those environments now and, and looking back, like maybe there's a reason why I do so much focus on, on, on diversity and inclusion in my life. So I do a fair amount of that in my job at the university and I've always been inter- interested in intersectional identities, um, and really sought that out. Um, but I think it came from probably those experiences of kind of being, you know, the only white person in my classroom, um, and then going to places where everybody was white. <laughs> um, but I think I, again, had pretty interesting exposure to kind of diversity in that sense. I think my parents were very open. Um, if I fast forward a little bit, you know, I grew up in a relatively small town in Wisconsin, um, about 5,000 people, a resort town between kind of Chicago and Milwaukee. And my father was the town psychologist. Um, and as much as, you know, most of the people were, were white, you know, there was obviously some other aspects of, of diversity. And I realized that I was pretty aware of that, whether, um, where the families were Jewish or whether they were immigrant. Um, but I just had awareness around that. And I think probably if it had to do with my, my dad and certainly with, with my mom as well. And, um, but I was pretty conscious always about the people were different, you know, and I had a, had a cousin who was kind of like a cool older cousin, like the coolest person in, you know, my family, um, who had, or at, you know, came out as gay in, in the early eighties, which was kind of a big thing to do. And, and I remember understanding that at a young age, like, Oh, my, my cousin is gay and that's okay. You know, and, and whereas in the outside world, of course, calling someone gay and calling someone a fag was part of just normal growing up in the Midwest. Right. And, you know, I also kind of knew like there's this internal conflict around that. Um, but I think I, I definitely had this early kind of consciousness around like um, what you see on the outside, it's not what's happening on the inside. And certainly around even my masculinity, which was um, where I was recognized that, that in society, men and women were definitely treated differently within my home necessarily that wasn't the case and kind of being exposed to kind of feminist ideas at a young age i mean outside of free to be you and me which definitely was a big hit in my house um, <laughs> um 
but some of that stuff really hit home, right? That, and even though my mom worked in the, in the home and my and for all of her life, um, at least as as a mom, she, you know, she raised five kids, and uh, my dad worked a lot. But I was always kind of aware of kind of the girls in my life and not seeing them as less than. Um, and then again, with myself and my own gender identity, again, um, I just knew at a young age that like what I was being sold was kind of a false false bag of goods. Mm. <laughs> Specifically um, around what it was to be manly or to be masculine. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I I was really aware again, and I use the example when I teach is that you know it was very clear to me. For example, if I was playing sports, um, and I was small growing up, like I was probably the smallest kid in my class, certainly through elementary school and junior high, and I really didn't grow until till late high school. Um, but I was scrappy, like I was, I was small, but I was fast and I was scrappy and I would get knocked around a bit. Um, and I knew if I got knocked around a bit and I hurt myself, I really shouldn't be crying about it. You know, and I have this, I remember this example of kind of playing baseball and being the catcher, you know, I had my hand out to catch the ball and, you know, my friend swung the bat and he, he missed the ball, but he got my, he got the mitt. <laughs> You know, and so I, my hand got pounded by this baseball bat and I felt like my hand was throbbing like in a Bugs Bunny comic or mm-hmm. a cartoon. And all my friends rushed around like, Matt, Matt, what's, what's wrong? Are you okay? And I remember my, my response being like, Oh, I'm okay. I just got sand in my eye, you know, and, and then recognizing like this kind of dance that happens between boys, which is, you know, as long as it's sand in my eyes, it's okay. And, you know, this part about, you know, go walk that off for a second, right? You know, so again, I play my part. There's sand in my eyes and I kind of walk away and I come back and everything's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but if I would have been crying and would have said like, oh my gosh, call my mom, you know, then somehow I would have broken these norms around that and that would not have been okay. I'm so glad you're sharing that story because I think it encapsulates why in our later part of our conversation when we talk about the task force on boys in school, that's why, like, you had parents that were teaching you feminist ideals, that were you were being exposed to diversity. You were already aware and more conscious of the sort of fallacies of this version of masculinity in your home. But even in the school systems and with your peers, you still learn those same things of, that we all learn as boys, of that we need to divorce ourselves from or separate ourselves from, like yeah. crying, weakness, um, hurt, pain. Uh, fear, any of those kinds of things, needing our moms. Yeah. Uh, and so it's like, it's, it points to even more why the work you're doing in the task force is so important because even in the best family setup, we still are going to integrate from the other systems we work, uh, live in and, and interact in like schools. We're still going to pick up those more challenging aspects or traditional aspects that limit us as boys. Yeah. No, absolutely. And I, and I think that, um, Again, at a young age, like I went to a pretty small school for like third grade through eighth grade, in which I had, I think I, think I had 11 kids in my class, um, you know, and there were eight, eight boys and three girls. So um, I feel now very bad for the three girls <laughs> of having to put up with eight boys for for six years, you know. Uh-huh. Um, um, but because of that, like we all had to play together. Mm-hmm. You know, and I remember that one of the girls was as fast as, as half the boys. You know, I remember wanting her on my team, you know, because she was fast and she was like, a, she was tough, you know. <laughs> and so, and even at my house, like my sister was tough. My sister was smart. Like my sister held her own, 
Um, and so I didn't have this environment in which I kind of saw necessarily my sister as less than, you know, or, or different than. And, um, but again, other messages outside were saying something else. And, um, and I said earlier, like that false bag of goods thing was, you know, part of that, what I was recognizing was, um, you know, on, on a, on a, clearly I felt like I had feelings about things. Right. And, and, and I remember getting in fights sometimes like scraps with, you know, my friends and actually involving kind of like fights and stuff and, and things like that and feeling really bad about it afterwards. Like having this conflict, like, gosh, like, oh, that wasn't very good. And I wish I wouldn't have done that. And so again, some of that kind of shame experiences kind of coming in and recognizing that that was true. And um, so as much as it was okay to be aggressive, like it, it wasn't okay. It didn't feel okay to be aggressive. Um, you know, and again, those things kind of, now I can look back kind of knowing what I know from a lifetime and of this and kind of understanding a bit more and kind of saying, oh, those experiences really were, were pretty, um, pretty formative for me. Yeah, I can really understand that. And it makes sense to me that, well, there's this thing around, it's okay for boys to be aggressive and to be in conflict with each other. We kind of make that okay. Oh, boys just being boys. And yet the part of you that was reflecting on it afterwards and not feeling great about it and struggling with even that piece of like, oh, I don't like how I handled that. Like, why aren't we nurturing that part with boys? Why aren't we celebrating that kind of self-reflection and recognition of when we step over someone's boundaries or when we have created conflict when it didn't need to be there, we could have resolved it in a new way. Like, why aren't we celebrating that part of boys? Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. And um, I mean, this, this is kind of where my story gets interesting or, or, or kind of more ripples, but like, you know, my dad was my school counselor. Right. So like, Ooh. I know, like, I mean, <laughs> my, my, yeah, I mean, my father helped write most of the, what we, what we now call childhood guidance, but now we're calling SEL. Right. So childhood guidance in the seventies was really big. And, you know, you, you had a school counselor who would come into your, your class maybe once a week or once a month. And they would sit down with these kids and they'd pull out puppets and they'd read stories. And it was about feelings and friendships and, you know, all these kinds of things. And that's what my dad did. Like, and so I had all those kits at my house and all the puppets and the books. And I mean, I was like a test. My sister and I were like, were like the test subjects for this stuff. Like, <laughs> um, so, so I was exposed to those kinds of things. And, and so were my peers. Right. Um, but I also know like as much as my peers sometimes fought it and thought it was kind of stupid, like I didn't. Um, and so I kind of, again, this awareness around some of that emotionality, I had kind of feelings that there are other ways to kind of talk it out. And like, I'm saying that th- also thinking like, I don't remember my parents necessarily being super, um, empathic with, <laughs> with us around things. And it wasn't like every sat around holding hands. Um, um, but there was an element of my family around um, openness and kind of, I guess we, we would call it democratic family. Like we had family meetings once, once a week. And, and I know because I've seen the notes, like I've going through my dad's things when he passed, I saw the, the notes that were taken um, at these family meetings about how we voted on things and how we talked about, about what we're going to do. And um, so there was an equity that I think I kind of picked up around how we could be with each other. Um, you know, but again, there are aspects of kind of that boyhood. I go back and say that through these, these formative experiences that even then I didn't share 
Like I can really clearly go back and think of um, like an experience I had. I must have been six in which uh, I was on a field trip and we were kind of in a lake. We were in a boat that had a motor and and some of the students had brought like like little fish nets. And the idea being that you could put the fish net in the water and maybe you'd catch something, right? Of course, we weren't going to catch anything, but of course, we thought we might. And I remember borrowing one, uh, a girl's net and the moment it hit the water, it flew into the water. And I remember feeling so ashamed of myself for that. And I can't remember if she was angry at me or whatnot, but I remember like feeling that way. And I can go back now as an adult and say that is the first formative experience I can have. I remember feeling really shitty, like really bad about myself. And again, and I'm not sure I shared that with anyone at the time. And I'm not sure anyone saw that at the time, but I can go <laughs> now. It's 46 years later and I can still remember it what i'm struck by while listening to you is is that how much all children but in the, in our conversation we're sort of focusing on boys how much we all have to sort through all of the different messages and things we're being exposed to and our own internal feelings all at the same time and try to decide what is the right path through it so some kids are getting exposed like you're getting exposed to what your father's work was and you're sort of the test children of that. Yeah. But you can also see in action, sometimes you didn't necessarily feel the same kind of empathetic yeah. um, and open dialogue space that, that was being talked about in those the theoretical and those sort of um, concepts that were being brought into schools. But kids are dealing with all those things all the time. They've got different messages from different adults in their lives, from different yeah. systems they engage in, and they have to sort through all of it without even having necessarily like the full their full brain capacity developed at that stage to really like do abstract thought and to think for themselves. <laughs> and yeah, so yeah. it's very confusing and a lot of work for children to have to sift and sort through so many mixed messages around who they need to be in this world. Uh, absolutely right. And I, I just think about like the amount of coaches I, I bounced around, you know, and, you know, everyone was a different exposure to, to an adult belief system. <laughs> You know, and again, as a child, you kind of like navigate them and you think like, oh, this coach is really nice. And wow, that guy really yells a lot at you. And I, I don't feel very good at being on this team. And um, and I, again, some of those messages really stuck. Like, uh, I remember I had a soccer coach who like, at some point pulled me aside and kind of asked, asked me genuinely, you know, have I, have you ever kicked a ball before? <laughs> you know, and I was... And I, this is like two months into the team. I was thinking like, hey, wait, I'm, I'm pretty good at soccer. And to be asked like that question, I think I think I might have stopped playing soccer that week <laughs> <laughs> and didn't play soccer the rest of my life for the most part, you know. Yeah. And, um, but it, it's just funny how, as again, as children, we do get exposed to a lot of different ideas. And, you know, like, and the thing I would say about kind of boyhood, and I guess I'm including, you know, part of my uh early adolescence and certainly high school years was again, having experiences, having internal dialogue with myself um, and then trying to find outlets in which I could speak about it. You know, and I remember in junior high, you know, being exposed to like early dating, you know, and I think I, you know, this was just like your, your, I never went on an actual date, but we passed a lot of notes in school, you know, and, um, and I remember the confusion about like, this or that and kind of having a girlfriend even though you know i didn't really and i remember it i had a friend who we would just go for a walk around the school 
And every like every two or three times a week, we would essentially ditch everything else that was going on and we would walk around the school. And we would just talk about this stuff. Like talk about like dating is weird and this is what this person said and like these intimate conversations and you know I you know I didn't think they were weird when they were happening, but I also realized that they were private conversations that you know uh, I was only having with him and I didn't want to be in the spotlight. Um, and if I can fast forward in high school, I can remember the very same thing. So in terms of trying to figure out things around dating and girls and and having a couple male friends in which we would just sit around and chat about it like you know which um was extremely helpful because it was really confusing and um and i didn't have a lot of guidance around that you know and um but i was always seeking kind of those outlets in terms of having intimate conversations so i guess it's not surprising that i you know trained therapists now but um um and i think i always was able to kind of pick and choose kind of friends and social groups that I could have those conversations kind of with. Um, and I would say boys and girls. And um, yeah, and that's been kind of a consistent thing in my life, um, which is kind of really beginning to cultivate these aspects of that inner inner person. And again, that's just, that, again, that false bag of goods, meaning that, you know, I was also very activist and athlete and, you know, I played basketball and I would, work like I couldn't believe, you know, and being in masculine kind of settings around that. Um, and then I'd also revert back to you know, so the other kind of places with very intimate conversations about feelings and empathy and just, again, I wasn't calling it that, of course, but, um, but just having people in which I could do that with. I love that you had those experiences. I don't know that most boys can look back on their high school times and say they had like intimate, real conversations about what they were confused about and what was challenging and what felt hard. Most of the time, most boys are just trying to act like they've got it all together and like they've figured it out and they're cool and dating is I'm, I'm skilled at this. I know what I'm doing. And yet, nobody actually feels that way inside. Right, right. <laughs> But I yeah. love that you had that experience of being able to have with boys and girls at the time, those kinds of conversations. And yeah, it doesn't surprise me that you weren't able to have that on a broader stage, but at least you were finding those spaces where it was safe and that you could have those more intimate conversations. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's true. And it's, and it's, you know, I don't really remember having those kinds of talks with either of my parents. Um, and I think my parents kind of just assumed things were okay. And mostly they were and um, having an older sister helped, you know, that she was mm. pretty, pretty protective of me and would talk with me about, about things. And, and she also paved the path. So I'd see what she went through and I would learn what to do and what not to do. <laughs> There's a real advantage of a boy having an older sister. As long uh, as you can have real conversations, boys really need to have an older sister. <laughs> yeah, I, I think so. Yeah. And she was like, she'd bring me to parties. When I was a freshman in high school and, you know, she'd make sure that everyone knew like not to mess with me. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Um, yeah, it was, it was, it was pretty great. Um, but yeah, but I think that again, a lot of that, you know, I can say I, I kind of remember feeling a bit like a fish out of water in high school. Um, and I, what I mean around that is that there were so many kind of dichotomies in terms of what I was seeing and experiencing. I grew up in a, a resort town that, that, you know, essentially had a lot of working class people and people who lived in town, but the town also had 
massive mansions and a lot of wealth coming out of Chicago. And, and so uh, I would see both. Right. And I would be aware of, um, you know, I knew things weren't always what they appeared. I knew my dad was a therapist and I knew that, you know, whereas he didn't obviously share kind of details of, of identities, but I would, I knew the kind of things he was talking about with people. And, and so I knew that there were inner lives that were difficult. And I worked at a pretty young age. My aunt owned uh, an ice cream parlor of all, all things. And, um, and my aunt was, a, I think about her too, as a pretty amazing person who I realize now she was one of the only people I think who would hire, hire black kids to work. And she would drive them home at night, like late at night when the restaurant would close at you know, 11, 30, 12, 30, because people didn't have a ride. But my aunt really, again, I, I wasn't calling her a social justice person in the eighties, but I look now and think like she was doing some pretty interesting stuff. Like she wasn't taking shit from anyone really. And she was hiring people regardless of kind of their backgrounds. And, and she was really like a big mother to a lot of people. And so, um, but working too, like exposed, exposed me to some social class kind of things in which oddly enough, I had these jobs in the summer, which I was a worked at this restaurant in which I, you know, was a dishwasher. I bust tables, I cooked and I scooped ice cream in the evening. And during the day I worked at a, an immense clothing store in which I, I, fit suits on, on people, you know, and learn how to tailor and learn how to sew and, but learned a lot about class stuff in terms of kind of, uh, uh, people who had a lot more money. Um, and it was always a strange kind of thing in which I'd have the same people who I sold pants to in the morning that I'd, I'd serve them food at night. <laughs> um, and then I might go out with their kids after work. <laughs> um, but I think always being aware of kind of like these class differences and kind of some, some race differences. And I didn't share too around the same time, you know, when I started high school, my, my parents adopted, um, kids. They adopted, a, uh, my brother and my sister Callie, both from Korea. Um, and so again, not a lot of Asians, uh, in the town. Um, and again, my parents being really open to, different cultures and ideas. And again, seeing those experiences around, um, again, what it must've been like for my siblings to grow up to in a, in a pretty white place. Um, yeah. It sounds like you've had a lot of really powerful and impactful figures in your life and experiences in your life that have really taught you about diversity that have really given you both the perspective of what we need to be, what you needed to be as a boy in order to be as successful as a man, but also that you could see through that whole charade that we're all doing, that whole act that we're all doing to become yeah. men. And it sounds like you also, like some of the figures in your life, like your aunt, your father, your mother, all had really powerful impacts on the way that you think. The one I'm really interested in pulling you out on a little bit more as we start to, start to talk about your work in the world that you're doing is that relationship you had with your father. It sounds like you had this unique relationship where there was something special between the two of you because of being athletes together. Yeah. But then also it seems like his career as a psychologist has had a huge influence on you. And my understanding from previous conversations is he did some work around masculinity uh, as a psychologist as well. So tell me about that relationship and how it led you into your work. Yeah, that, that's a great question. And I think that, um, like I can say, like I had a great relationship with my dad. You know, and, and when he passed away, um, about 
four and a half, five years ago, like it, it was a huge loss and it's, it's still a big loss um, for me. And I am still kind of processing parts of that, you know, because he was such a big figure in my life. And I think I, I can look back now and say like, he's the only person in my life um, who just loved everything that I did. And it didn't matter what it was like, he would always appreciate anything that I had to say, whether that was an accomplishment or whether there was a book I read or a CD I listened to, like he'd read the book, he'd listen to the CD, you know, and um, he was just very interested in me, you know, and so I, I laugh like, you know, I went to crazy concerts with my dad, like I, you know, saw Fishbone and and early Sinead O'Connor and punk concerts with my dad and just these weird shows that he, he went along for the ride. And now I think back and think like, I think my dad was trying to relive some of his early adulthood <laughs> um, <laughs> um, that he didn't have maybe because he had young kids and had to work and be an adult so fast. But, um, but I view that as an openness to me. And um, so I think part of that was contact. I spent a lot of contact with my dad early on. Um, you, you know, and, and he, he, he drove me, like he really pushed me to do things like, and I think, um, I didn't necessarily always push back. And I think that like sports was a really good example of this is that he was an active runner. He became an obsessive marathoner. <laughs> he was a college cross country coach and he was known for being a runner. Like he ran competitively and was sponsored by all these teams and, I spent time around athletes. Like, you know, um, I went to the US Olympic trials. He didn't run, but he was coaching an athlete. And I was just exposed to this world of athletics. And, um, and my dad also expected me to run. Um, and he would run with me sometimes and sometimes he wouldn't, but um, I didn't always love it. But I, you know, I think probably from the age of five, like, you know, I've been active as an, as a athlete since the age of five which is a strange thing to say. And I don't think there's probably been a week that's gone by that I haven't worked out four or five times that week for, for my whole life. And, um, and I, it's, so again, like that part was really big um, in terms of kind of what he taught me around uh, being active, but also wellness. He was really interested in, in my dad went through these different periods, which I think is one of the things you can do when you're, you're an academic is you can continually reinvent yourself <laughs> And he continually reinvented himself, going from kind of kind of wellness uh, stuff in the seventies, moving into some sports psych stuff, and he wrote some really sports psychology books. To at one point, he realized that there were weren't any books about men, relationships, and sex, um, and that's why he got interested in in kind of men stuff because he was thinking about writing a book on it. And so he actually was involved at the early meetings within the American Psychological Association about this division of men and masculinity. And again, he wasn't a super active person as it went on. But again, I can go, I have the notes. <laughs> like I have the meeting notes from the mid eighties and, and he's there and, uh, they're like artifacts of strange things. And, um, it's quite a legacy. It is. And, and I think that it, you know, it's one of those things that I think my dad certainly could have cast a very big shadow. And, you know, he was a big fish in the field and, um, and later on, like he made a lot of training videos. And so he became very well recognized by, I think, people who went to school in psychology or counseling. Or so. And so they saw him on video. And so even though he cast this really big shadow, he didn't really cast it over me. 
like he was always very conscious of me being my own person. You know, I remember both my parents saying when I went to college, like, go do whatever you want to do. Um, which sounded really open, but I also realized, like, honestly, like, the fact that I was in psychology, you could have predicted that. Like, it was, I just had way too much exposure to it at a, at a young age. There was a natural fit for me. Um, um, but I knew a lot about it. Like, I think I was exposed to kind of aspects from that kind of field. And, and my dad was, again, very conscious of not necessarily having me do what he did. And so even when I did some things that he did, you know, he was very open about not wanting to kind of crowd. And when we did do projects later professionally, again, we navigated that pretty well and that I wasn't a clone of his. I think that other people probably saw me as more of a clone, um, but I never saw myself that way. I don't think he saw me that way either. Um, and I think that he purposely probably moved out of kind of men and masculinity work when I got into it. I love that you had that experience of being inspired by the, the, the conversations that you were having with your father as a child and what you were exposed to. You turned it into a career. You get to partner with each other. And it didn't become sort of like that jockeying for territory thing that can happen with, with us as men. Our egos get triggered and we want we want it to be our voice that makes the impact. And I love that you had that experience that he wasn't playing that out with you. Yeah, it's funny because I, I think that... Um... I never felt like this sounds straight. I never felt like I had to do things to make him proud. I always felt like that was a given. <laughs> so I didn't have to. That's a big deal, though, because I, I don't I, think both boys get to feel that way. I completely agree. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and I think um, another kind of really funny thing, and I and I know this is unique to me. Um, um, you know, my dad collected a lot of books. Like he, when he was interested in a subject, he would go like find every book on the topic and. So when he got interested in kind of men and sex, like he bought every single book on human sexuality that there was, and they were all downstairs next to my room in this library, essentially this. And I would stay up at night. My parents went to bed and read all of them because <laughs> I was interested in sex. And, um, and so before I, the internet, you couldn't, yeah, you couldn't just Google something. Yeah. <laughs> so at a really young age, I had a pretty good understanding of clinical sexuality. <laughs> and so, so I knew I was normal. And I knew my friends were normal <laughs> and I could tell them, I was like, oh no, that's totally normal. You know, like, you know, penises do that, you know, totally normal, you know? And, <laughs> and I just remember like, you know, I, I remember later in life, I mentioned this at some conference I was saying like, oh, my parents must have known this. And both my parents looked at me like, what, what were you doing down there at night? Um, I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. I read all those books. I, I always put them back very nicely. So. This reminds me, have you seen that show on Netflix called Sex Education? Uh, I've heard about it and people keep telling me like, it sounds just like that. It sounds just like it. Jillian Anderson being a sex therapist and exposing her child to it. And then he starts to open a sex clinic at his high school. Yeah. <laughs> it just sounds so much like that. Yeah, it's funny. It felt that way. It felt like, oh, okay. This makes sense. I'm, I'm a very healthy young, young male. So, <laughs> um, but anyway, yeah, it was interesting. Like just having, I think, exposure around that. And, um, and I think the thing with my dad too is like, um, like I, I feel like I obviously had a course of him in terms of kind of obviously being my father and being young and then, uh, going through periods where again, I got married, had a young family and I got to see him as a grandparent. And then, uh, when he passed, so he passed, um, after a pretty long battle with, with cancer um, over like an eight year period. And, uh, but also seeing him in that place where 
I began to move to a place of taking care of him in some ways. Uh, certainly on a professional side, you know, looking at some of his things and um, taking them over. And then when he passed, really kind of closing out like clinical cases and things around that area. But, um, but, but kind of seeing how he passed and kind of seeing how he went through that. And, you know, I guess I would say the toughness around it, like, um, and also then uh, in many ways adopting his role as kind of the patriarch of the family, if that makes sense, meaning that when he passed away, everything up and on to me. Um, and, and realizing that was a pretty heavy weight to bear and then having maybe even more appreciation for my dad's experiences in his life. And I think him passing is a, was a huge, big step in more empathy for what he went through in terms of going through and as I went through documents, as I was sorting, I began to learn a lot more about his life in his 20s and 30s and 40s. And, uh, and a, a lot of appreciation um, in terms of that. Some interesting rites of passage that I think many men go through. And I don't know that everyone gets to have sort of this, uh, sounds like a very beautiful and intimate experience. Um, challenging, full of grief, hard, all of those things too. But as you reflect back on it, it gives you a, a different appreciation for the man that your father was and what he was carrying, and you have a different level of empathy. It's almost like, it's weird to say, it's almost like I want more men to have that experience because yeah. I think it opens something up in us when we have that. I mean, I don't want people to have to grieve and, and be in, strugg in struggle, but it is a natural part of life, and it is an interesting rite of passage to move into that caregiver role with our parents. And to learn about what they had been carrying this whole time. Yeah, abso absolutely. And, and I think it, um, and it's odd because I, you know, I, I, then I moved into a, a caregiving role with my mom, um, who, who just passed two months ago. And, um, but again, being a caregiver and understanding that, um, you know, and I also know the data around the amount of men who, who do caregiving and it's pretty high. Like it's around like, like 40%, particularly. With, with their mothers and that's only been increasing at a pretty pretty rapid rate you know and that essentially modern men in the United States do a lot of caregiving um, even though we may not see it that way or, or think about it that way the truth is that's true um, and there's a process I think that is very humanizing and I think um, again kind of later in life having a lot more maybe emotional flexibility myself allows me to kind of understand how to, how to manage that. Um, yeah, it's so true. A lot of men are doing that. My partner's father's doing that with his father, who's um, going through late-stage dementia stuff. And so it's really yeah. interesting to watch him in that role and to watch him in the stress of it all and in the emotions of it all and the grief of it all. It is really interesting to watch that um, and to be yeah. sort of observers of a man going through that process with his own father. Absolutely. and uh, And... You know, your partner could chat with me if you wanted to, because my mom went through the same thing, you know, and it was a very interesting experience that I think in some ways feels, um, and this is an interesting theme, I think, which, which some ways feels like, oh, I'm going through this. It's really hard. And then thinking, you know, I must be the only one. And of course you're not, you know, and I, and I think that's actually a theme in my own life as a man is, is. At some age, probably my early 30s, just recognizing that I wasn't going to stay silent anymore about things. Is that if I was going through something that was difficult, I was going to talk about it, you know, and, um, and to big, and big surprise, like the primarily men I talked to 
were super supportive and maybe had gone through it before. You know, I think early on um, with my wife kind of trying to trying to get pregnant, and have kids and going through a lot of miscarriage and fertility stuff. And it was a very tough experience for both partners. Um, and I think the male was often left out, certainly by, by the medical profession. Um, as I began to go through that, I recognized I was going through losses. I began to talk about it with some of my friends. And of course, they had gone been through it before. Which is again, like you think I would know this, seeing as I've studied this and I work with men. But again, um, again, there's just things that men don't talk about, you know. And we we carry a lot of burdens. And I just you know, in my personal life, I've decided I'm not going to do that, you know. And I and I I'm lucky to have a, like a friendship group that can listen and also share with me back. Um, but I think things around these things that men kind of go through, you know, we learn to be so quiet about it and to suffer in silence and. To at times maybe misunderstand our feelings and um, but we misunderstand them because we don't process them and play with them we don't practice them like one of my colleagues talks a lot about this with you know if if feelings are coming out of the heart right and the heart is a muscle you know if you don't exercise that muscle it gets really hard to process share and experience feelings right so you got to work that feeling muscle <laughs> mm-hmm. and work on on kind of getting it out you know and um and I think that again, as I get older, it's probably easier because I get a lot more gender role flexibility as I get older. <laughs> um, but I think it's so critical to begin to kind of share that with younger people too. I think so too. I think there's that piece where what I find in my work with men is is that we are actually all craving that kind of intimacy, vulnerability, yeah. ability to see ourselves in someone else's experience and story. We just don't have very good models for it. And even you as somebody that knew better based on all of your studying and, and professional life, you still in, had that internalized for a while, that internalized message that you can't share those things. That you can't open up about those. You have to isolate with them. And yeah. it, it does take certain men taking that risk, being brave, committing to self to not hiding when you're going through something. Yeah. To give other men permission to see themselves and to go, yeah, that's me too. I can talk about that too. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny because this is something I, I, I would say I didn't get from my dad. <laughs> um, cause I think in some ways, like, you know, my dad had kind of Swedish parents and that, uh, you know, that Scandinavian notion ar- around stoicism. I realized when my dad passed, I realized how strong that really was in my family. <laughs> <laughs> how much we don't really talk about emotions. I realized my dad rarely ever talked about his emotional world with me. And and I learned it from somebody else. Like I learned it from kind of friends, but particularly from, from my friend, Mark Stevens, who I psychologist who, who I write with. And he's been a huge mentor for me around just this ability to be open emotionally and to kind of process it and feel it. And, and again, I work in a field, which that's my job. And, and yet, yet at times, I'm really great at doing it for other people. Um, like I can facilitate that to the end, end of the day. But for myself, it was a pretty big challenge. Yeah. I know that. I know that path too. <laughs> <I> know that <laughs> yeah. well. We're yeah. always, we're always best at teaching what we're learning ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, yeah. It's a fun thing of always being the teacher, never being the student, uh-huh. you know, and recognize now at, at kind of middle age, like, man, I want to be a student. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I'd love to pull you out on some of you of your professional experience now. We've sure. heard some of your personal journey. I really appreciate being able to hear the ins and outs of what makes you you. 
But you've had 25 years of studying men, masculinity, gender, and actually being at the forefront of some of the the next steps of where men's work is heading, a positive masculinity, all of that kind of stuff. I'd love to hear more about your sort of perspective on the work you're doing in the world. Sure. Thank you. Um, I appreciate that. You know, you know, it's interesting. I, uh, I maybe I came to this a little later than other academics in the sense that I didn't go to grad school or into my doctoral program actually wanting, wanting to study men. I had a much earlier exposure to actually feminist ideas in college. I was lucky to go to UC Santa Cruz, which had a great women's studies course in intro to feminism. It's like a rite of passage for everyone who goes. Um, and I went to that a little later and it was great. You know, and um, I learned a lot about women and I became a school counselor and I facilitated groups for for mothers and daughters. You know, and I remember at the time saying, oh, you should you should do this for fathers and sons. And my my flip response was, well, they won't come anyway. Right. And um, and then later in my doctoral program, at some point, my advisor said to me, you know, you really better figure out your, your research topic, because um, if you don't figure it out, I'm going to pick one for you. Um, and I realized, like, I should look at my clinical work. And I realized in my clinical work, I was seeing a lot of male clients. My male clients were sticking around. Um, and oddly enough, working with men was not very hard for me. Like, I had a, a lot of flexibility in terms of navigating kind of maybe men who are, who are a lot more traditional. I could do that. I could also navigate with men who are maybe questioning their sexuality and maybe questioning their masculinity and what that kind of looked like. and. I could quickly move between those extremes in so many, many ways. And um, so I didn't realize this was even a field of study. And of course, one of my professors gave me this newsletter from this vision APA about men and masculinity. And then I went to a conference and I saw a presentation by, uh, by a man named Jim O'Neill, who writes in what's called general conflict, um, which is the largest concept that's been studied in, in the psychology of intimate masculinities. And I wrote to him, you know, kind of requesting permission to use his, his scale. And he wrote me back a personal letter, you know, and, and a lot of information. It was just incredibly kind. <laughs> um, and I was voracious for uh, a couple, you know, three, four, five years reading every single thing I could get my hands on across disciplines, whether it was psychology or anthropology gender studies, um, family studies, anything I could read about masculinity I read. And I felt like I got a pretty broad exposure to the, the kind of the field at, at that time. And I began to work in that field and kind of began to do research on it. And yet there was always this kind of nagging part that I, that I was aware of is that as much as I was really fascinated by this research, I began to come to this understanding that I wasn't so sure if the research that was being conducted was actually about me or that if the research being conducted, the conclusions were really about a lot of the men that I knew, meaning that, that a lot of the research was about what I would call the dark side of masculinity, which is all the reasons why things go wrong. And, you know, and I think that's not uncommon in psychology, meaning that, you know, psychology doesn't really, really study mental health, right? It studies, the side of mental illness actually it doesn't study health like only only a handful of people actually study health and again that's where kind of positive psychology in more recent decades has has kind of arisen um 
this notion of kind of what does it mean to be healthy? And I began to really question that in our field, meaning that I knew a lot about where things went wrong. I knew a lot about male depression. I knew a lot about anger. I knew a lot about about restrictive masculine norms, right? But I didn't know a lot about fluid masculine masculine norms. And with a couple of colleagues, I remember having a conversation um, in DC over, over a drink and kind of sharing this maybe for the first time saying like, I don't know, like, I don't think this stuff fits me. You know, I don't, I can't, again, even with my students, I asked them to find themselves in the research. I couldn't find myself in the research because I, because I didn't, as much as I understood dominant masculine norms, I didn't necessarily subscribe to them in, in the same way. Like, I didn't think I had a lot of gender role conflict, right? And that's where kind of this notion of kind of positive masculinity came out, which is kind of being, I was always interested in, in positive psych anyway, um, you know, coming well before kind of the recent thing, but kind of looking at the work of Alfred Adler, you know, who actually was interested in health, right? And um, and Alfred Adler was a, was a contemporary of Freud. And, you know, Adler thought people were healthy when they were engaged in the social welfare around them. So you want to know a happy person, they're engaged in the social welfare. Um, and I was really conscious of that, um, about what does social interest look like in men and what does health look like? And so honestly, our initial work with, with, with my colleague, Mark Maselica and also Mark Stevens was about this was like, let's just begin to talk about this notion of what is healthy masculinity. I mean, we were calling it positive masculinity. I view it more now as healthy masculinities. Um, but it struck a chord. Meaning that I think that it's something we, again, if, if we know what goes wrong, that's something. But if we don't know the right path, then we have some problems. Like, you know, if I can point out where all, where all the dead ends are, that's really great. But I got to also point out the correct direction to go in and what does healthy look like. And so beginning to kind of have conversations with colleagues who are also interested in the same things, which is, you know, what should we be teaching boys, right? And what, what could we be, be talking about in terms of adult men, in terms of, of health? Um, and so this notion of this paradigm of, of positive masculinity to me, um, I think it's the most exciting thing there is today, you know, and, you know, one of the things that I think we've been seeing is, I don't know if I would say, say, say a breakdown of masculine norms outside of maybe the recognition of, again, masculinities, IES, not why. There are multiple forms of masculinity, gender, like everything else is always changing. I know that the boyhood of my dad is different than the boyhood of me. It's different than the boyhood of my son. You know, that we grew up in different contexts and environments and masculinity is essentially a construct, right? And so it's going to shift based on the, the context around us. And what I think is most exciting right now is kind of what I would call kind of flexibility and masculine norms, which is how do we begin to look at, again, we, we talked about this earlier, if norms are kind of changing, you can kind of say, oh, that's horrible, right? You know, um, because I'm, because I'm so fixed on a certain way of being, <laughs> right? And I can't be flexible, right? Or you can look at it and say, man, look at the opportunities, right? So most of the research is really, really clear that, again, masculinity itself, again, is not a harmful thing. Um, but rigid masculinity is, you know, and, and that's also true in most things in life. If you can't adapt to the environment around you, you're going to run into some problems eventually. Right. 
And I think this notion kind of adaptive, adaptive masculinity allows men to kind of move in places that are new. For example, I think men have more an opportunity today to be, be an engaged father than ever before. Right. And that's amazing. I think men today have more opportunity than ever um, to fully feel their sexuality. Right. That they're not so constricted by heterosexual norms that men can begin to come out um, as gay or, or bisexual or questioning. Right. That with gender identity, we can begin to kind of say, I don't necessarily identify with this male label, you know, but there's ways in which we have an opportunity to kind of maybe grow a little bit and to just be different. And I think in general, in relationships, like I think men can be different in relationships too. Like there's a bit of a loosening around restrictive aspects of that, whether it's emotionality or roles. But I, but again, this is a, this is in concert, of course, to kind of changes in gender overall. Like this isn't just a magical thing that happened because someone decided to talk about toxic masculinity. Um, you know, it's, it's because there's, I like it this way. There's things happening in society that have happened for over 50 years. And essentially the rise of economic power for women is the greatest thing that has changed all gender norms is that um, because men had to adapt, right? And the men who adapted um, are doing a lot better. And the ones who haven't is why we have books called At the End of Men, right? And why we are talking about these aspects around where men are kind of stuck. I really appreciate your focus on the sort of that positive side of things. And, and it's it's where you and I are aligned in our values. Like yeah. in some ways, I really feel it's important to call out some of the challenges, some of the dead ends, some of the places that aren't working. But if we're not starting to look at where is this heading or where are we going, what is healthy look like, then I don't know that there's a reason to continue having that conversation of pointing out what's wrong because yeah. it needs to evolve and needs to change. So I really appreciate that. I'd love to see have you apply what you're talking about in terms of your own professional experience and, and values and, and viewpoints on this to the work on the task force with boys in school through the APA. Like what how does this apply to how we're educating boys? I think that's a really good question. And I and I think this can sometimes be also a touchy kind of topic. And it has a bit but I think it has a lot to do with how we actually message it. Um meaning that I it has a lot to do, honestly, with power and privilege as well. Is that um, it is? I've had conversations with people, or seen conversations in which someone will say, "There's a boys' crisis in school, or there's a there's a male crisis in higher ed," um, and people will push back and say, "Well, you know, they had it good for a long time, you know, so maybe this is the evening, you know." And I don't clearly, I don't appreciate that kind of comments, but but I think it's in the messaging as well, like what we're really talking about when we look at kind of boys in school isn't kind of all boys necessarily. It's certainly looking at pockets of boys and boys of color in particular, right? But there is some elements around schooling and elementary schooling and K-12 schooling, which we have a fair amount of data that is kind of saying that, again, boys and adolescent males are not achieving in, in the same ways that they were before. And essentially, they've, they've kind of lost ground, right? And the, what I would say about that, where that becomes... I would say worrisome in many ways is that what happens when we have a larger kind of population of kind of kind of men or males in the world who again who don't have higher education, right? What happens when we kind of have men who experience more difficulties? Because um, that is going to be an ongoing issue, right? And so I think with looking at kind of boys in schools, I think it's again I'm going to be data based and say let's look at the data, right? 
Um, let's look at teacher ed and, and my, I suspect Ventura, who you had on the, the show recently spoke about this because he's a, he's a teacher educator. Um, you know, there aren't as many men in K-12 teaching professions and there certainly are less at kind of K-8 and K-6. Um, you know, males tend to be PE teachers and science teachers, you know, and, and administrators at times. And, um, so we begin to look at kind of, so what do teachers know about boys and, and again, how they might be, uh, at times different, right. Um, and, and, and the worlds that they live in, in terms of how we kind of think about gender, because real quickly, gender is an organizing construct in our lives. And whether we like it or not, we do see the world through gendered lenses and we do have gender biases, right? Everyone has them. You know, again, the question is, do we work on those biases and kind of figure out how we adapt them? Yeah. So if you're continuing to look at the data of what of, of, there's a need for change in our schooling on how we educate boys, from your perspective, what do you think are some of the most important changes or evolutions that need to happen in the way that we're educating boys? Yeah, you know, it's, it's, there's lots of ways you can look at this. And I think, I think one way of looking at it is what I would, call, I would, I would call the backtrack way is let's look at adult men and let's look at the difficulties that they are having. Okay. So right now we could say, um, adult males, right, are having difficulties in employment, right? In terms of like how are men adapting to the changing world of the economy, right? And again, adapting is the big, issue here can they adapt Two, i would say we have kind of relationship kind of kind of concerns about adult men which is how do they navigate relationships both in terms of kind of being an equal partner or being a partner um or being a parent right and then three i would say we certainly have some concerns around men's health right in terms of kind of how men uh, again i would just say go to mortality statistics look at kind of why do men die four or five years earlier than women in, in American society, the society. And I would say that's a crisis, right? Um, and if that doesn't convince you, just look at, look at suicide rates then, right? Which is remarkable. We haven't been talking about this for a really long time, but the fact of the matter that if men are killing themselves at a foregone rate compared to women, that is something we should be talking about and, and why that kind of happens. So we take things like this and push this back and say, you know, do these things just happen to adult men or is there a genesis or a prevention aspect that could be addressed in schools? And the question, of course, is, yeah, like we know health behaviors get formed at adolescence. Like, so we ought to be hitting health behaviors pretty hard in high school and junior high. If we're looking at, at like relationship skills, like no one teaches relationship skills in general. Like, so it's not like, you know, girls and are, 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 are getting something we're not. However, Society gives gives girls a lot more flexibility in terms of understanding emotions and emotional regulation, emotional awareness, really to have conversations, willing to have empathic conversations and, and, and reflective conversations. There's a lot of training that kind of happens around that, right? Um, and boys often get left out of that, right? So again, how do we bring that in to kind of have these conversations about how to have conversations, right? Which goes back to, I think, if we look back at K6, again, it's got to be some aspects around learning how to understand emotions, right? Learning and learning how to name them and learning how to actually regulate them. Because a lot of when we look at the kind of behavior disturbances in, in K6, which there is a pretty wide disparity between boys and girls, 
a lot of it is emotional regulation. And there's, again, there's hard data that looks at this. It looks at kind of how girls and boys experience emotions differently in the world at that age. Um, essentially, girls could get a much broader education on emotions than boys do often. So again, we could begin to be doing some of those things in, in schools. Um, and I, and I think if we do, you begin to see very different outcomes. Yeah, it sort of reminds me back when earlier in the conversation we were talking about sort of like working the muscle of the heart and working on that emotional life. Yeah. It does seem like women and girls are given in our society more spaces where they can exercise that, more yeah. spaces to be intimate and vulnerable and have permission to be that than boys. And I do think there you can draw a pretty straight line between boys' inability to sort of understand uh talk about regulate their emotions yeah to behavioral issues to uh male depression to drug and alcohol abuse yeah to suicide epidemic that's going on in, in the male world and I, it is does seem like it's one of the most important things that we can do is to is to teach boys earlier on what to do with their emotions to give them permission to have them in general yeah absolutely <laughs> and, and to give them tools and resources for how to regulate them yeah, I, I, that's, that's spot on, right? I mean, and, uh, and I, I realize that it sometimes it sounds like, you know, gender stereotyping or sex stereotyping and, and, and kind of essentialist notions around gender and which I don't like either, you know, but I also think that's part of the reality, mm-hmm. right? And, and I think we have to kind of adapt based on the reality or educate based on the reality. And the other reality of this is that these things are really great. But when we talk about change in schools, right? Let, that means change in teachers. Like, you know, there's institutions, right? But there are things in which any institutional message gets delivered through the teacher, right? And if we don't have teacher ed, or we don't have teachers to understand maybe that boys maybe experience the world differently, or there's a sensitivity around that, right? The likelihood of this happening is pretty small. It's so true. I think about, I used to be a behavior coach for kids and I used yeah. to, I used to get those parents that would, I'd go into their home to do work with their kids and the parent would go off and we, I'd be closed in the room and the kid wasn't, we would do some work together, but then the system and the adult around them that created those behaviors is, is not changing with them, is not learning that yeah. stuff with them. And so if the adults around, that's why I became a coach and stopped my focus on like child welfare and, and human yeah. develop, child development was because I recognized that the actual place to make an impact is with the adults who are in those spaces with those kids, who are educating them, socializing those kids around yeah. these norms. Absolutely, right? And so it's like this, again, this element, like, what are we kind of teaching, right? Like, like I view this as, as actually prevention work, right? Because if not, later on, we're teaching it, we're teaching it based on, a, on, on acute distress, mm. right? So, like, this is prevention work, right? That if we begin to do this stuff at an early age, begin to recognize that there may be different experiences or different ways to approach, right? Um, how we work with boys, that's super critical. And I'd also say like, and it isn't like, you know, this notion of kind of boys is like this large construct. I mean, it is a large construct, but we also realize that boys have different identities too, mm-hmm. right? And so when we begin to kind of look at kind of boys of color, for example, then we start getting in, into racial biases in terms of how that comes out, right? And so it's, and we know, again, there's data that looks at kind of how boys of color are treated in schools, right? They get much harsher discipline, right? They drop out at higher kind of rates. And they're not kind of reached towards as opposed to we expect boys to kind of come to all the time. 
And I think there's, again, there's cultural elements around that, that kind of change in the culture of, of schools, but essentially make the school more adaptive to the experiences of, of the students that they're having. And real quickly too, I, I would just share that, you know, sometimes people say, well, doing things for boys means less for girls. And I would kind of say, you know, the reality is, is that we rise up boys, we rise up girls too. Yeah, it's not a zero-sum game. It's not a zero-sum game. It seems like we get keep constantly get forced into that way of looking at things, and there's yeah. a, this huge scarcity model that that our culture teaches. Yeah. And it, it's what you're pointing to. There's some even broader cultural shifts, not just the cultures of schools, but cultural shifts around. We are, in the U.S. at least, a culture of treatment, not prevention. Yep. Even in our medical systems, and everything is about wait till it's a problem and then deal with it, yeah. instead yeah. of actually being preventative in our care. And there, the, yeah, it's, there's these big cultural shifts that are required around our language, around scarcity and zero sum games about if I offer something to some one group, it disenfranchises another group. I don't know that it has to be that way. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned that, right? Because I think that there is some of that. Like, I think one of the greatest things in the past 30 years, right, has been the work with, with girls and education which is looking on empowerment models and looking at things around kind of STEM and how do we encourage girls going to these fields and a lot of sensitivity about it. And that's great. And having kind of uh, programs that are kind of tailored to boys in a similar area doesn't mean that, you know, the girls stuff get put in, in, in the rear of your window. Like you kind of work with kind of the needs that are out there and you can continue to kind of support both. But I think you're right. There often is this, that scarcity mindset that somehow we're going to, by, by rising up one group, the other group gets gets pushed down. And I think that that's not really the case. And I would say too, like, and I also have a lot of sensitivity towards teachers. I think teachers work really hard and they're mm -hmm. uh, underappreciated yeah. um, in a lot of ways. I think, again, having some appreciation for what teachers can handle and what they can do is really important. Um, this is a, a systemic thing, right? So it's got to start from departments of ed. It's got to start um, at districts, right? We're going to kind of say, hey, this is an important thing. Yeah. So in alignment with that value that we talked about around, it's easy to continue talking about the dead ends of what's not working, but we want to start to reflect on what is working. If there are parents or educators that are listening to this that are interested in finding models of, of organizations that are doing this well, schools that are doing this well, do you know of any that you could point to that would that are good models of, of good education for boys? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And I think there's probably a, uh, a lot, you know, the one I'm most, most familiar with is actually a school in Australia called, called, called Brighton Grammar. Um, and Brighton Grammar, you know, when I came across their materials on their website, I kind of thought, who are they consulting with? Like, I've never seen a school that has actually taken the actual research on the psychology of men and masculinities and applied it. <laughs> you know, I realized that in, as I got to know the school a bit more, like they are working with, with scholars and men and masculinities and they're looking at the things we talked about earlier is so let's get the data and see where the long-term problems are and let's do some prevention work. And so they really have boy-centered learning, right? That it's really about kind of boys in a holistic kind of manner, which is kind of boys and well-being. Like how do we encourage kind of the physical and the academic and the emotional and the spiritual and the creative in people's lives. And they really like, they, do it. Like they really talk about kind of boys from a boy perspective. And, and I don't want to like bag on other kind of schools and things like that, but I do have an impression that a lot of schools that, you know, are male only, or, you know, or, or a boy school don't know a lot about boys. 
totally. You know? Yeah, <laughs> I, would, yeah. I would agree and, on that. <laughs> frankly, that's it, right? Is that yeah. is that there's elements around kind of understanding kind of experiences of voice and how they might be unique and how they has has to be cultivated because that well being component. Um, again, school can't just be about success, you know, because if you're only about success, you know, a lot of men that again, that's such a trap, right? They become so success oriented that other things get put by the wayside. You know, if we balance like success and academic success with well-being, right? Which is what does it mean to be uh, a successful, right? Man also is being having a strong sense of well-being, right? Which is being community oriented and other oriented um, and having like, obviously like a growth mindset around that, um, I think that's kind of what we really want to look at. And again, K-12 is where it's at. I mean, the, the sad part about it is, is that most of the work that I do and people like me would do, whether they're social workers or counselors or psychologists is, you know, they're working with men, um, who didn't get that stuff. Right. And so yeah. we, yeah. And so it's, we wonder again, look at things like suicide completion and look at things around depression and, and there's got to be, got to be another way. Everything you're describing about the school does seem like it's really in alignment with the task force on boys in school and the mission of it. And one of the things that sticks out to me from the mission is, that you were just describing is allowing boys to embody their full humanity, not yeah. just one little sliver of what success looks like, but like a full human experience, emotions, relationships, intimacy, um, well-being involved in that, not just good at one skill that then can make you money later on. Yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting, and a lot of that again, it's a boys' school, so that that male-to-male contact is a critical, you know, and um, and how do we build like a brotherhood that's an inclusive brotherhood, right? That appreciates the range of kind of masculinities that people experience, as opposed to a brotherhood around one set of masculine mm-hmm. norms, because a lot of sports, unfortunately, is is teamwork around one idea around masculine norms, which is success, power, and competition. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Um, and we have to, again, look at adaptive kind of ways to kind of create more inclusive kind of models there. As a queer boy growing up, I would have really appreciated that spaces where I, my version of masculinity was included rather than continuing to ask me to reject parts of my masculinity so that I could be acceptable. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I know I look back, back again and look at some of my childhood experiences and look at some of my friends who later came out. And I just think like, gosh, gosh, that must have been hard. Mm. Yeah. You know, it, it, must it, have been hard. it was. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I can voice yeah. at least from my perspective, it yeah. was. Yeah. And there's and a I, lifetime of undoing that and, and reclaiming and finding who I really am rather than who I learned to cope in the world to be. Yeah. Um, and that's really confusing because I developed those safety strategies for, uh, for a long time and for a reason. For a reason. And it's and it's hard to pull those apart and recognize those aren't necessarily who I actually am. Those are just coping strategies. Yeah. But when you practice them for so long, it's hard to really know what's me and what's my coping strategy. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And I think back, like me, I look back and do wonder, like, could I have been a better friend? Like, or how could I have been a better friend? And and not in like a massive regret, like, but it's a piece like. I missed some things back then. And, and, and I've actually had conversations with some of my, my friends as adults and just, you know, acknowledge some of that. And, um, but again, like it'd be better if, if, like you said, you wouldn't have to create this shell around the coping strategies. What if you could just be you? 
<laughs> what if we could just be you? And I, I think that's true of all men. I don't think that's just for queer yeah. men. I think that yeah. I think that's for men of color. I think that's for white men. I think that's for trans men. Yeah. I think that is for men in general. What if we could just be ourselves? Yeah. Well, it's been a real pleasure to connect with you to find out who you are as a man, just as yourself as a person, but to also pull on your professional strengths as well. If there's one piece of advice you'd like to leave men with, what might that be? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, and one piece is so hard. <laughs> um, I mean, I guess the thing I would kind of say is, is, and maybe this sounds like a very, very academic thing because it comes out of the academic literature in many ways, which is recognizing that, that being flexible and adaptive, right, actually is a true sign of health, right? That when we bend and we stretch and kind of meet people in different kinds of places, it doesn't make you less of a person. Right. It makes you an adaptive person who's responding to what is needed out there. And I think that, um, for a lot of boys and a lot of men, that's easier said than done. Right. And I guess what I would say around that is that, but you probably have more allies than you think. Well, thank you so much for offering that. I'm so glad you pointed out that ad ad adaptation or adaptivity and flexibility is one of the themes that I really pulled out from our conversation as a, a perspective of yours that is really important that we need to sort of allow ourselves more flexibility and adaptivity. So thank you for sort of closing it with that, that last yeah. little piece. Yeah. And it's funny because I, I'll say one more thing um, because I think it, that like, I know we talked about this before. We know masculinity is going to be a massive issue in the upcoming elections. Yeah. Right. And it's going to be terribly distorted <laughs> mm -hmm. and terribly misrepresented and whatnot. But the reality is, is that, most of the research is just saying be flexible. Mm -hmm. It's not saying you can't be who you are. It's saying flexibility is probably going to be a more useful thing for you. It, it doesn't say you're a horrible person for being, being a traditional man, right? It, but it, so again, like I always look for middle ground and look at kind of ways to minimize, you know, um, the, the message that's being maximized as being incorrect. Mm -hmm. But again, adaptive, flexible, you know. Thank you for that. Yeah, I, it, we're such a brittle society right now. And so I, I just appreciate anybody that's able to put voice to that need for flexibility and a little bit more uh, seeing what where we're the same. And, and, and yes, asking for evolvement and change, but not necessarily from that shame and attacking version of, Absolutely. that we, we see a lot of in our culture. Absolutely. So if people wanted to find out more about the task force on boys in school or find out more about you and your work, how might they do that out there in the world? Um, for the task force and the school, I would encourage you to go to the webpage for the Society of Psychological Study of Men and Masculinities. That's division51.net. And on that, you'll see a link for the task force on boys in schools, which thing is pretty fantastic. Uh, on my end, um, I do have a center called the Center for Boys and Men at Cal State Fullerton that we are continually revising and adapting the base on these, but it's really kind of a, of a hub for information um, to begin to look at kind of healthy ways of, of, of being a man. Oh, great. I'll, I'll make sure that um, those, that information is put in the show notes so that people have it easily accessible um, so they can find the work that you're doing and the, continue finding the fact sheets that the, the uh, task force on boys is putting out there. Yeah. If you want to get in contact with me, you can go to my website at travisstock.com. You can email me directly at travisstock 3 at gmail.com, or you can find me on Instagram at Travers03. It's where I'm doing a lot of posting about the new masculine and having ongoing conversations with people outside of these static episodes, so I encourage you to follow me there. 
and engage in the conversation. If you'd like to support the mission of this podcast, I'm also on Patreon. You can go to patreon.com slash the new masculine. That's patreon.com slash the new masculine to become a supporter of this podcast. Thank you so much, Matt, for joining me, for adding so much of your wealth of knowledge as a man and as a professional that's doing work around uh, men and boys. And I just am so grateful that we get to continue talking about this early preventative work that is really setting ourselves up for the future for really some important changes that are needed in our in our lives as men. Yeah, I appreciate Travis and um, the time, but I also appreciate you and what you're doing and what you're putting out there. I think it's really important. And um, so just thank you for what you do. Mm, thank you. It's wonderful to be in community with men who share a similar perspective. Yeah, yeah.